<clears throat> it's good to be back here in Charlotte. <clears throat> I was down in Florida last weekend for the uh, Bible lectures. Uh, about 500 miles down there one way, and then 500 miles back, Mr. Dylan King was there doing some filming. I was listening to Mr. McNair's comment about the uh, camp out on Copperhead Island. So I joked last week it was an Arkansas fish story. This fisherman was out fishing, and uh, <clears throat> he needed some bait, and he saw a, a, a cottonmouth water moccasin with a frog in his mouth. So he reached down behind and don't do this. <laughs> but he reached down and grabbed this copper, the uh, cottonmouth right behind his head, and he picked him up, and he pulled the frog out, and I'm going to use that for bait. And then he figured, now what am I going to do with this, with this snake? Uh, I would liable to get bit if I let go of it. So he had a little bottle of Jack Daniels, and he poured some of the, <laughs> some of the Jack Daniels down the snake's mouth. And the, the snake's eyes kind of rolled back, and he went limp. And so he threw the snake away, started fishing with the frog. And about an hour later, he felt something on his foot. And he looked down, and here was the cottonmouth uh, rattlesnake with two frogs in his mouth. <laughs> He wanted another drink. <laughs> now, don't do that either. <clears throat> but it is a privilege to be back here with you in Charlotte. <clears throat> it was a busy weekend last weekend. It was going to be exciting to see what the fruits of the lectures are going to be this weekend. <clears throat> One of the exciting things, I think, last weekend was just being able to talk with people that are, are, are learning the truth and are beginning to put things together. I was talking with one gentleman after one of the lectures, and he said, this makes sense. This makes sense. We were talking about how do you identify America in Bible prophecy and what's ahead for America. Another lady said, this is fantastic. This was fantastic. So it's exciting talking with people that are beginning to see that you know, Bible prophecy does make sense out of world events, and it does reveal what is coming in the future. <clears throat> You know, we sat down, I think, I don't know, it was probably a month or two months ago, uh, and we actually targeted cities, decided on what cities were going to have some of these lectures. And we tried to pick cities where we have a, a rather large uh, subscription list. And we've started on this, and I think up through the end of June, we plan to have about 50 lectures. And Mr. Ames made a comment at lunch the other day referring to <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10, verse 23 where it says, you will not have gone over all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes, which uh, was kind of interesting in what we're planning to do, what we're hoping that God will open doors to do over the next year or so. <clears throat> well, brethren, we are going to be observing the Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread in just over a week. And the Passover is an event that reminds us that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, gave his life to pay for the sins of mankind, yours and mine. And that we can be forgiven of those sins if we repent. That is, if we repent of breaking the laws of God, and we begin to change and do things differently. In the book of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> chapter 11, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Corinthians today. 
because it's a book that Paul wrote about this time of year, giving instructions to the people in Corinth, many of whom were Gentiles, about preparing for the spring holy days. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he mentions there about putting a person out of the church that was involved in a very serious sin. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, you're puffed up. In other words, he's drawing on this concept of being leavened, having sin in your midst. And again, this doesn't make any sense if these people were not keeping the days of unleavened bread. Verse 7, he says, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. Now, they weren't physically, they were physically unleavened because they probably put leaven out of their homes, but they were not spiritually unleavened because of what was in the midst of them. And he says, therefore, let us keep the feast. He's talking about the spring holy days, that we need to be keeping those. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to begin reading in verse 23, because Paul is giving instructions to prepare the church there for keeping the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, Take and eat, this is my body, this is symbolic of my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do also as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till I come. In other words, you're observing it as a memorial. He says, as often as you do this, and some people today do this four or five times a year or more, sometimes weekly, but the often, how as often as you do it really refers to what the Bible is talking about. And the only instructions in the Bible are to do this basically once a year at this point in time. But then he gives instructions how to prepare for taking the Passover. You know, every year people, some people conclude, well, I'm, you know, I've, I'm, I'm not very, I've not been very good this year. I'm not ready for the Passover, so therefore I probably shouldn't keep it. And yet that's exactly why we keep it. Because we've sinned, we've slipped up, And the Passover is to remind us that we can be forgiven of sins. But in verse 27, Paul tells the congregation there, here's how you prepare. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself or let a person examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. Whoever drinks or eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What Paul is saying here is as we approach the Passover, we need to be examining ourselves. Examining ourselves in the light of the Scriptures. And we've encouraged people over the years Maybe to read through the booklet on the Ten Commandments and ask yourself, am I keeping these? I remember we were talking with a lady one time, and she belonged to another organization that happened to keep the Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> this particular church also taught that you shouldn't drink coffee, you shouldn't drink tea, and those things. 
And I was kind of joking with her just a little bit. I said, uh, do you drink coffee? And she got kind of indignant and said, well, sometimes it sneaks in. <laughs> sometimes it sneaks in. You know, we need to be taking time at this time of year so that things don't sneak back in. We need to examine ourselves. That's what Paul is talking about, to examine ourselves. The period of time before and during the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover is a time for self-examination. I realize teenagers that are not baptized yet uh, will not be keeping the Passover, but, you know, even as a young person, you can ask yourself questions. You know, am I following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? Am I living according to the laws and instructions of Jesus Christ? Where am I going with my life? Now, you can ask this as a young person or as an older person. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to analyze. What am I doing? Where am I going? What direction am I going in? I was just thinking as I was preparing the sermon some time ago, I grew up in the 1960s. And it was a television program about two Brooklyn policemen that got into all kinds of crazy adventures. And they were never where they needed to be <laughs> when they needed to be there. The name of the program was Car 54. Where are you? <laughs> where are you? One of the cops was a big, tall guy. He was actually, in real life, a graduate of Harvard University. The other guy was kind of short and stocky and wasn't too intelligent. And he was actually, in real life, uh, real life, a singing waiter. So you had these two guys that were totally different in real life. And then on the screen, uh, one was more sober and the other guy was kind of uh, 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 easy come, easy go. But the, the byline was basically, or the title was, Car 54, where are you? You know, when you're needed over here. And I was asked the question of you today, where are you? Where are you physically? Where are you spiritually? There's going to be other people listening to this sermon at another time, probably over the Internet. I would ask you that are here listening today, why are you here as opposed to being somewhere else? And I would ask those who would be listening later if they not even a member of the church of God here. Why are you there? Why are you here? Why are you there? Do you know? Have you ever asked yourself these questions and taken time to answer yourself? Do you know why you're here? Do you know why you're there? Over the last 15 years or so, the Church of God has split into over 300 different groups. Now, some people say, well, we're all the same. Well, if we were all the same, we wouldn't be in 300 different groups. I mean, it's just that plain and that simple. <clears throat> some people say, well, it really doesn't matter where you are as long as you love Jesus and love the Lord. Well, as we will see, I think, as we go through the sermon, there is a way that is talked about in the Bible. It doesn't say ways. It says there is a way. 
that is right and true and leads in the right direction. Again, we're not the only church that has experienced trials and tribulations and divisions. You know, there was an article in the paper this morning <clears throat> about the Lutheran church. It says they are splitting, basically, over the issue of homosexuality. That's this year. Last year, it was the Anglican church that started to split over issues. And there are a lot of people, I think, that are very sincere. They want to obey God. They want to do things God's way. But when they see their church leaders can't agree over various things, and then they wind up going here and going there, every time that there's a split, people are confused. People are disillusioned in some cases. Instead of going one direction or the other, some decide to just drop out of religion or stay home and just try and do something that's right in God's sight. So we're not the only people within the church of God that have had to deal with these issues. There are other people today sitting in congregations, and they're, they're, they're not happy where they are. They're not convicted that that's the truth. I think I've mentioned this before. I was speaking to a congregation down in Kenya one time. And I'd been to this congregation several times, but on this particular occasion, I noticed there must have been 20 or 30 new faces. And I asked the minister, I said, where did these new people come from? He said, from the Seventh-day Adventist church down, down the road. I said, why are they here? He said, they've recognized their minister is not teaching them what's in the Bible. They've recognized it's not in the Bible what they're being taught. And about halfway through the service, I saw this one fellow come in and sit down. And I asked later, who was the guy that came in late? And I was told, he's the minister of the church down the road. <laughs> he wanted to find out. He wanted to find out what people were hearing that he wasn't teaching because he didn't understand. But there are a lot of people today, I think there's a lot of people that have been part of the church of God that are not really happy where they are. They're frustrated. They're confused. Some are turned off. So I'd like to ask another question, maybe to think about. Where should you be? Where should you be if you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? Where should you be? Where would you want to be if you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? If you actually began looking around and asking this question and praying about, God, where do you want me? Where should I be? I want to obey you. I want to do your will. Help me find where I should be. I remember a story that Mr. Bruce Tyler has told back about 10 or 15 years ago. A gentleman in one of the islands in the Pacific, he saw what was happening to the church of God, and he, he couldn't figure out what to do or where to go. And he said he got down on his knees by the beach and prayed, God, show me where your church is. Show me what happened to your church. And a day or two later, one of our magazines showed up in his mailbox. <laughs> and he concluded that was an answer to his prayer. God has ways of reaching people. 
God has ways of reaching people. But if you wanted to find the church that Jesus Christ founded, if you're actually looking for it, what would you look for? What would you look for? How would you recognize a church that Jesus Christ founded or the church that Jesus Christ founded? Yeah, we deal with this subject in one of the follow-up lectures in the Tomorrow's World Lecture series. And it's interesting watching people's reactions. What I want to cover in the sermon today are ten characteristics of God's true church. Now, we've written booklets on this. Dr. Meredith has written a booklet on it. Uh, Mr. Gwynn wrote one. We write articles on this from time to time. But I want to talk about ten characteristics. What would you look for? How would you identify the church that Jesus Christ founded? If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you know, Paul was addressing the very issues that we're talking about here. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he's writing to caution the people in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a big, bustling city. <clears throat> it sat on a major east-west trade route. A lot of traffic back and forth, a lot of sailors coming through that area, a lot of ideas coming through that area, pagan ideas, uh, Jewish ideas, uh, Christian ideas, a lot of different things. But notice in verse 9, he said, For we are God's fellow workers, talking about those that Paul was working with, you are God's field, you are God's building. God is fashioning something in you. He's molding and fashioning you to fit in to his plan and purpose and his government. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds upon it. But let each one take heed how he builds on that foundation. Now, you've got to be careful what you decide to believe. I've got to be careful what I decide to believe. You know, will you be led off into uh, left field or right field or somewhere else? And we need to be careful about what it is that we decide to believe. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, Matthew, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.4 talks about Christ being the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness. It's the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ that we need to build on. Not somebody's idea, but the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ that we find clearly outlined in Scripture and confirmed in history. This is what we need to be building on. And then Paul uses an analogy. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, now, notice the declining value of these things. You, know, you can build with gold or silver or precious stones, or you could build with wood, hay, and straw. And the wind comes along and blows the straw away. There's that little nursery rhyme about the three little pigs. You know, one to build a house out of straw, and a big wolf comes along and blows it away. And the other one's built out of what? Twigs, I think it was. And blew that away. But the wise little pig <laughs> built his house out of stone, out of brick, out of rocks. And the wolf comes along and huffed and puffed and nothing happened. 
the Bible uses the analogy of building on a solid foundation, something rocky, as opposed to building on sand that changes and shifts. If we're going to be building a foundation that we're going to believe in, it's going to guide our life, we need to be sure of the materials that we use, the doctrines that we choose to believe. Because notice in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. It's going to be plain in time what you built with. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work. We're all going to be tried and tested. Our beliefs are going to be tried and tested. Verse 15, or 14, says, If anyone's work which he has built endures, he will receive a reward. However, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer the loss. You know, so we're all going to be tried and tested. Our values are going to be tried and tested. People will mock at what you believe. They may laugh at you. You may lose a job. Or other things may happen. And it may relate to what you believe. Probably will. Now, you don't want to lose your life or lose your job or have things happen to you and then find out later, I was building on sand. It was somebody's ideas. It wasn't the truth. So we've got to build on solid ground. We've got to build on solid ground. We've got to build carefully because there's a lot of shoddy building materials. There's a lot of shoddy building materials. There's a lot of false ideas that float around in the name of Christianity today. And we've got to be careful we don't buy into those things. Before we actually get into the ten points that I want to cover, let me just mention several principles. And the Bible is full of principles. It's full of principles we need to be aware of. Matthew chapter 7, at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, he says, Beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. You will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Isaiah 8.20 says, If they speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. There's no truth in them. They may use Jesus' name, but if they're not teaching you, to follow the example of Jesus Christ, and they're twisting the Scriptures, then you don't want to follow them. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said towards the end of His ministry, Many will come in My name, using the name of Jesus Christ, using the name of Christianity. Many will come in My name and will deceive many. Now, people think we're deceived. We're a tiny little group. We're a tiny little group. Revelation 12.9 says, Satan has deceived the whole world. There was another interesting article on the Internet this past week. A fellow who had grown up as a Muslim <clears throat> has written a book entitled Son of Hamas, The Gripping Account of Terror. Betrayal, political intrigue, and unthinkable choices. He became a Christian. But he makes a very interesting comment. He says, uh, many Muslims do not understand what the Koran teaches. 
Think about Christians today. How many of uh, Christians claim, or how many claim they're Christians and they don't understand what's in the Bible? Yeah, many studies are showing that. It's the same thing in Muslim society. They don't understand what the Quran is all about. They want God in their lives. You know, we spent a summer in Jordan, and the people we met in the countryside were very, they were very nice people. You come in, have tea, talk. They're very pleasant. They wanted God in their lives, but they don't know who they are worshiping, he says. His comment was, uh, he said, the biggest terrorist is Allah, the God of the Koran. If you read the Koran, read what it says, you begin to understand what he's talking about. But he's commenting that many Christians don't understand their religion. He says many Muslims don't understand theirs either. So the principle, many will come in my name and deceive many. I remember talking to one of the young men that uh, kind of took over there, was involved in taking over the Worldwide Church of God, introducing new ideas. And I said, what happened to Revelation 12.9? It says Satan will deceive the whole world. He said, well, we don't, we don't want to talk too much about that. That could be offensive to people. We don't want to talk about that too much because it could be offensive to people. It was the truth. Satan has deceived the whole world. That's why the world doesn't understand what you understand today. Acts chapter 5, verse 32, it says, God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. To those who obey Him. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about one of the gifts of God's Spirit is a sound mind, a discerning mind. A spiritually discerning mind. You're able to discern where the truth is. You're able to discern where the church of God is. Now, I've talked to people and say, well, you know, all these churches of God, they're all the same. And I'm thinking there's a lack of spiritual discernment there. There's a lack of spiritual discernment there. See, God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. You stop obeying God, you're going to lose spiritual discernment. It's not going to be there. This is the way it works. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, another principle Paul mentions there. Again, to a Gentile church, basically. He says, prove all things. Examine everything. Examine what you believe. Examine your foundation periodically. And hold fast to what is good. Solomon said something very similar back in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 through 27 where he says, ponder the path of your feet. Think about where you're going. Think about where you're going to wind up. If you're not happy where you are and you're very frustrated, you might want to think about, why am I here? Why am I here? Where am I going? Where's this all leading? What's the outcome going to be of all of this? As I mentioned, many are sitting around in churches not just churches of God. I was talking with a person over the weekend. said, I grew up a Catholic. Never did understand what they were talking about. 
when other people made other observations about where they were coming from. We need to ponder the path of our feet and ask, why are we doing what we're doing? Where are we going? If you're not happy where you are, ask yourself, why? Why am I not happy where I am? What I'd like to do then in the sermon is to get back to some basics. I want to look at ten characteristics of the church of God, God's true church, that are described in the scriptures. But I also want to ask them as questions. I want to ask them as questions. And these are basic things. It's not real profound, but if we forget the basics, and again, I've used this example before. And the story goes that Vince Lombardi, who was this legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, began his practices in the fall talking to professional football players. They're making a lot of money. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. Kind of like, duh. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I played basketball in high school, and every year, especially the beginning of the season, the coach would go over principles. You know, you never pass cross-court. It's too far. Uh, you never you do certain things on the court. You just don't do them. And if you do them, then you lose games. So I want to focus on ten quick characteristics or ten questions that we can ask. Because if we forget the basics, we're going to get in trouble. The first point I want to talk about is what is the name of the church that you attend? What is the name of the church that you attend? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not going to die. It's going to be around. And Mr. Armstrong read that years ago and he began looking. He said, if the Bible means what it says then that church should be around somewhere. Now, if you read into church history or things about the church, uh, they generally take the word ecclesia, and they say, well, that means a, a called-out community of believers. In many cases, it's just a community of believers. And there's a scripture that Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered together, I'll be there with you. And that's kind of as far as they go. And if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, Paul mentions four times in the book of Corinthians about the church that he was part of, that the Corinthians were part of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God. Not the Baptist church, not the Methodist church, not the Catholic church. He says, to the church of God. He names it. I grew up in different churches, read through some of these scriptures, read right over this. Never made any sense to me. It was just, well, it's there. Just the church of God. We're all churches of God. No, we're not all churches of God. Three other times, chapter 10, verse 32. Notice, Paul is using a specific name here. <clears throat> Chapter 10, Chapter 10 and verse 32. He says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. So don't be offending people in the church of God. Chapter 11 and verse 22. 
What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And finally, chapter 15, verse 9. Chapter 15 and verse 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What is the name of the church that you belong to? The church of this, church of that. The Bible calls the church the church of God. You know, Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, telling a Gentile church, he said, follow the churches in Judea. Not Rome, but follow the churches in Judea. Teach what they are teaching. Follow their example. You know, Jesus describes his church, the church that he founded, as a little flock. Not millions of people but a little flock. He said, you're going to be persecuted. Christ was persecuted. Paul was persecuted. The early church was persecuted. And the church that is teaching the truth of God is going to be persecuted today, as we will see. John chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, scriptures that we read on the night of the Passover. Jesus is talking about his disciples, and he describes them. They're not of this world. They're not of the religions of this world. They're not of this world's Christianity. And he asked God in a prayer, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctifying means set apart for a special holy use. But it's the truth of God that separates God's church from the churches of this world. And one of the ways that we can kind of follow the history of the church of God is to notice those groups of people down through history that have kept the Sabbath, that have kept the holy days, that have kept the dietary laws. Now, not all of them did these things perfectly, but you can see these things as a marker. And when you look into their beliefs, they generally appear to be part of the church of God. Among the Waldensians, for example, there appeared to have been Sabbath keepers that kept some of the holy days, that followed the dietary laws. Some did, apparently some didn't, probably kind of like the Church of God today. People that use that name, some do and some don't. But it's a marker that you can use to follow the history in general of groups of people that appear to be part of the true church. So what's the name of your church? Number two, what does your church teach about the laws and the commandments of God? What does your church teach about the laws and commandments of God? Are they a burden? Are they a curse? Were they nailed to the cross? Are they no longer necessary for Christians who are under grace? Are we willing to be taught by the Scriptures? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? That's interesting. Jesus said these things, but a lot of people don't believe this today. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, He says, Think not, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it. I didn't come to do away with those things. 
I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And the word here means to complete. To complete it. And when you just read through the rest of Matthew 5, he said, you know, in old times it was said you shouldn't kill. But I'm telling you, don't be angry with your brother. Don't be angry. Don't fly off at them. That's the same thing as killing. He said, you're not supposed to commit adultery, but I'm telling you, don't be looking at people and lusting after them. It's the spiritual application of the same law. There's a letter of the law and there's a spirit of the law. That's what he was talking about. He didn't come to destroy. He came to fulfill. You can read other scriptures in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus kept the Sabbath as his custom was. Well, he was just a Jew. (laughs) He was promoting Christianity. He set an example for us. The Apostle Paul mentions in Acts 17, verses 1 and 2, he kept the Sabbath as his custom was. Paul was a Christian. You know, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, back to Corinthians. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. It was an example he set for us. You know, the Sabbaths are going to be kept in the coming kingdom of God. If we don't keep it now, how are we going to teach people to do it in the coming kingdom of God? We need to understand not only the scriptures, we need to understand history. The early church kept the Sabbath. The early church kept the holy days. It was bishops in Rome that began to promote Sunday worship. It's a matter of history. And it was Constantine getting involved with the bishops of Rome that persecuted people three hundred or you know, about 300 years later that continued to want to keep the Sabbath. So, you, know, you can't do that because we're going to put you out of the church. We're going to persecute you if you want to keep the Sabbath and you continue to Judaize to keep the holy days. This is what history shows. We published this in our booklets on the Sabbath, on the holy days. You know, Samuel Bakioki wrote his book, from Sabbath to Sunday. He got his doctor's degree from the Gregorian Institute in Rome. Now, why would the Catholics give him a doctor's degree when he basically showed that they had changed the Sabbath to Sunday? Because he was proving that they changed the Sabbath (laughs) and acknowledging their authority. I mean, this is history. This is history. We need to understand that. I would encourage you to do some marking in your Bible, in the book of Romans. Many people think that uh, Romans does away with the law of God. As Dr. Meredith mentioned in his sermon on Galatians, and even the textbook that we use for the epistles class mentions that when Paul talks about the law, you need to understand what he's talking about. Sometimes he's talking about the Ten Commandments. Sometimes he's talking about the laws and the rituals. uh, And you've got to understand what he's talking about. You can't just take a a blank explanation of things. But maybe start in Romans chapter 2 and go through and mark a number of scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 13, it says, The doers of the law will be justified. You've got to be doing certain things. Chapter, or chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The law is for our instruction. It shows us what's right, and it shows us what's wrong. Chapter 3, verse 20, it says, the law defines sin. You kill somebody, it's a sin. 
And when we go back to Leviticus, it talks about a man who has relationships with a man and a woman who has relationships with a woman is an abomination to God. This is in the law. It's in the law. There's another interesting clipping in the paper this morning about a fellow who is promoting tolerance of different paths, different paths to God. We need to be tolerant. We're all going on a different path. But he's asked a question. He says, the chapter in your book on sexuality makes no conclusions about sinfulness. It doesn't talk about sinfulness. Uh, and he says, you don't even broach the subject of abortion. He makes the comment here about uh, uh, homosexuality. He says, sooner or later, almost everyone meets a gay person, and they may be challenged to rethink some of their assumptions. Oh, you assume it's wrong? <laughs> Maybe you need to rethink that. He says, this is an issue where young conservative leaders are not satisfied with the answers of the older generation. In other words, if you believe it's a, a sin, well, you're outdated. You know, you need to rethink that. But this is one of the reasons people are leaving the Anglican church. This is one of the reasons the Lutherans are splitting. Because their leaders are saying, well, it's not a sin. Like this uh, fellow that was ordained a, a bishop up in New Hampshire a couple of years ago that literally started the split within the Anglican church. He said, there's only several scriptures in the, New or in the Bible that talk about this, and I'm a nice guy. You need to get to know me. You forget the book. Forget the book. And yet people are beginning to realize it's in the book. And they're throwing it away. And I don't want to be part of this organization anymore if that's the way it's going to go. Because they realize it's wrong. But the leaders don't seem to understand that. And so what is your church's approach to the law and the commandments? Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy and just and good. He's not throwing it away. Romans 8, 7, it says the carnal mind, now here's the key, the carnal mind resents the law of God. I don't like it. You know, we live in a society today that's kind of don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me. I'm going to make up my own mind, do my own thing. That's what the ancient Israelites did. But let's move on. What is your church's position towards the law and the commandments of God? The law is going to go forth from Jerusalem when Jesus Christ returns. And it's going to be taught to people in the world by people who understand the laws of God. Who understand it. Number three. What gospel does your church teach, and how effectively is it doing that job? Many people today think the gospel, Jesus loves you, and you need to love God, and, and that's the gospel. Well, that's part of the gospel. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, we've emphasized this for, for decades, literally. But this was not the gospel that I grew up learning and believing as a child, as a young person, had never heard this. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's there as a representative of it. Repent. Change your life. Change your life. You begin walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Follow his example. Follow his teachings. And believe the gospel. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 8 and verse 12, what did the apostles preach? Here we have Philip going down to Samaria. Verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the coming reign of Jesus Christ on this earth, where we can reign with him, and the name of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, which was also part of the gospel. It was almost unbelievable several years ago. We had individuals who had been members of the Church of God, ministers in the Church of God, and they could not conceive that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was part of the gospel. It is unbelievable. But here we have Philip preaching about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah. And Paul was preaching the same thing. You can check several scriptures in Acts 28 at the end of that chapter, where Paul was preaching about Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom of God. But notice finally in Matthew 24, a prophetic statement about what the church would be doing prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus was asked earlier, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 14, he says, This gospel of the kingdom, the coming reign of Jesus Christ on this earth with the saints, will be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end is going to come. You know, unfortunately, some people who were part of the church of God, part of a church that was actually doing that, are now sitting at home wondering what to do. You know, how do you fulfill this mission of preaching the gospel to the world as a witness if you just sit in your own living room and talk about Jesus? So we've got a job to do. We've got a job to do to be part of that to help make that possible. And we can't do this as little individual groups all by ourselves. We've got to be working together as a team. Number four, what does your church understand and preach about prophecy? Does it preach about prophecy? And then what does it preach? Now, I've run into people that said, you know, we don't want to talk about the bad news. That's prophecy. We just want to talk about the good news. What's interesting is, Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says, do not despise prophecy. Don't take it lightly. And yet we've had people, you've heard people preach sermons about prediction addiction. Don't get all excited about that. One individual who used to write for the um, Plain Truth magazine, Saw a letter he'd written on the internet recently where he's adopted what he calls what is called a preterist approach to prophecy. It's all in the past. 
It's all been fulfilled. You know, so get a life. <laughs> Don't worry about it. And yet you read through Matthew 24, it talks about at the time of the end these things are going to happen. You read through the book of Revelation, it's talking about the end of the age. And yet here was a person that was part of the church, is telling people, I just laugh at people when I start talking about prophecy. He's totally jumped the tracks. When you go through the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets talked about warnings about what's coming, but they also delivered a positive note that there is hope coming. They delivered a message of warning and a message of hope. There's going to be a restoration of things. It's exciting. It's very full of hope. Revelation 19, verse 10, it says, The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Peter mentions in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and the old King James has a very interesting way of putting it. It says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, Peter, the we for Peter is the church that he was part of, that he was an evangelist in. He said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Mr. Armstrong was saying things in the 40s and in the late 30s that Germany was going to come back and lead Europe. How did he know those things? See, God's Spirit, as we're told in John 14, 15, and 16, will lead you and guide you into all truth. And when you begin to obey God, He gives you His Spirit, and He's enabled His church to understand Bible prophecy. In a very unique way. So Peter was under, understood that, was saying that. What's interesting is you go back to some of the prophets, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, and he says, The time will come when people will say, Prophesy unto us smooth things. You just tell us things that are not going to upset us. And you want something really interesting? Read Jeremiah chapter 5. He says, The prophets of Israel are windbags. They are full of hot air. And he says, they prophesy falsely and people love it. See, so just tell us smooth things. Don't tell us things are going to upset us. No, the prophets were given a role. They had a role to play. Just as God warned the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah before they, they went into captivity, he's going to be doing the same thing today to the nations of Israel. They're going to need to know why things are happening and what is going to happen. Otherwise, the punishment's not going to make any sense. Why is God doing this to us? We go to church every Sunday. We pray. Wrong day. A number of other things. You know, people have got to understand. Number five. Is your church preparing you to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God? Is your church preparing you to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God? Notice in Luke chapter 14, I think a number of churches are trying to feed their flocks. You know, they can read that in the book of John. But notice in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He's talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
which is also a projection of what the church should be doing. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 1, he will also go before him. That is, there's going to be a forerunner, someone coming, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And you read a little bit about Elijah. Elijah kind of came out of the woodwork. Who is this guy? (laughs) And he stopped the rain and he's doing this and doing that. Where did he come from? And they said the same thing about Jesus and his apostles. Where did these guys get their information? (laughs) Yeah, they were fishermen. Look what they're telling us. He will come and be, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah turning to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, emphasizing the family again, and the disobedient or the rebellious to the wisdom of the just. These are the fathers in, in, the, in the scriptures. And to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You're prepared to do what? Revelation 5.10, to reign as kings and priests on this earth as civil and religious leaders. Isaiah 30 and verses 20 and 21, they'll be saying, this is the way. This is actually the way. Walk you in it. This is why we keep the Passover. This is why we keep the Days of Unleavened Bread. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It reveals the plan of God. Now, you can't teach it if you don't believe it. You can't teach it if you've never done it. You can't teach it if you don't understand it. But this is what we're going to be doing. Isaiah chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 2 and verses 2 to 4, it says the law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. Explaining that God has a way of life. Has to do with what you eat. Has to do with the days that you worship. It's a way of life. It's a whole package. And the church is preparing people to do that. Why have we had a Bible correspondence course or a Bible study course? Why have we had spokesman's clubs? <laughs> so you can learn how to teach and how to, how to speak. Why did we develop a living leadership class for the entire congregation? Where we talk about leadership, the elements of leadership. Why did we develop an advanced leadership training program? So we can train people where they are. We, can't, <laughs> we don't have the funds or the resources to bring everybody here. We're in a different age, a a different world today. Why did we develop Living University? To develop classes so you can explain the Bible. This is what the church is doing. It's not just for something to do to keep busy. We all have too many jobs. (laughs) Why start another one? Because we've got a mission to prepare a people to prepare them for the return of Jesus Christ and to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. Number six, does your church practice and understand the government of God? Some people think, well, you know, this government thing is not that important. What's the difference between the United States and Cuba? What's the difference between the United States and Russia? What's the difference between the United States and North Korea? Government. Government is one of the big things. You know, and just you, you go back to the basics again. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, he says, I want you to choose individual. You choose them. You appoint them. And look for certain qualities. 
And you put some over tens, some over fifties, some over hundreds, and some over thousands of people. It's a pyramid. Yet we've had people running around, we're going to flatten the pyramid. Well, how can you flatten what God has inspired? It's a hierarchical form of government where different people have different levels of responsibility. That's how businesses run. That's how the government of the United States is supposed to run. You, know, you, you can't change what God has inspired. Deuteronomy 1 says the same thing. Acts chapter 6, the, the six deacons there were recommended and then the apostles ordained them, appointed them. Paul mentions in Titus chapter 1, appoint elders in every city. Now, balloting and casting lots are two different things. You're casting lots, you kind of put some stones or chips of pottery or something in, in a jar and then you shake it out. That's very different than writing down somebody's name and then kind of lobbying for your position. Now, some people think it doesn't really matter. But I mentioned this before. Plato made the observation 400 years B.C. He says there appears to be a cycle that governments go through. They start out as monarchies. Then they go to oligarchies, a rule of the few. And then to democracies and then to anarchy, and then to dictatorships. Here's an unconverted man looking at human governments, and this is what he saw. If you notice what is happening in the EU, they had a president who was appointed for six months. Then they passed this Lisbon Treaty, and they elect now a president of Europe. And then they've also elected... Uh, a, um, a foreign minister of Europe, a lady from England. And then there's also a president of the European Council. And they're all fighting for turf. And essentially, probably what's going to happen, they're going to get so sick of this turf battles, the Germans are probably going to say, we want a real leader there. <laughs> Someone who will make decisions. So they've set themselves up for a need for a strong hand from somewhere to come in and kind of take over. It's going to be interesting to watch and see what happens in the United States who are bickering over this health uh, legislation. And we, we can't seem to make up our mind what we want to do. And there are churches wrestling with governments that they've created, not just churches of God but where they're selecting their own leaders. In fact, one little group here recently said, we don't even have a minister, we just elected a leader. But he's not a minister. You know, God has a system of government that works. Jesus Christ, we read this in Isaiah chapter 9, is coming back to this earth to set up a government. It's not going to be a democracy. It's not going to be a dictatorship. It's going to be the government of God. I would encourage you to read Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Numbers 14, 1 through 9. The Israelites started murmuring against Moses, and they said, Let us select a leader, and we will go back to Egypt. And Moses was told, They are rebelling against me. They're rebelling against me. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites looked around and said, they got a king over there, and we just got Samuel. 
would like a king. So God gave them a king, and he told Samuel, they have rejected me. The Bible is pretty open about democratic procedures. And yet some people have assumed that we can be God's church and still do that. Point number seven. Is your church characterized by brotherly love? Now that's something we need to think about. Sometimes we can be very judgmental. And other people can be judgmental. But Jesus said in John chapter 13, again a scripture we read on the night of the Passover. Verse 13, chapter 13 of John, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus gave his life for people that didn't know him. It's one thing to give your life for people that you have a connection with, that have done nice things for you and so on. But Jesus gave his life for people that spit on him, nailed him to a cross, because he knew that they didn't understand what they were doing that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this quality, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You might even jot in your margin here, Leviticus 19, verse 18, where the Israelites were told, love your neighbor. That's not an exclusive New Testament concept. Do you love your neighbor? your closest neighbor, your wife, your husband, your kids, the people next door that have a noisy dog. <laughs> yeah, we got to try the shoe on. Does it fit? This is something that should characterize us as God's people. might be good to spend some time, maybe even this evening, on 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? It's a lot more than five feet of heaven and a ponytail, which was a song that was popular whenever I was growing up. <laughs> no, love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't get upset. Doesn't have a short fuse. Forgives. It's understanding. As we approach the Passover, maybe these are things to think about. You know, am I this way? Are you? Number eight. What era does your church represent? What do you mean, eras? Some people don't believe in eras. Yet Revelation 2 and 3 talks about eras of the church. You know, the Thyatira era appears to have been the era about the 1500s when the Reformation occurred. And again, when you study the history of the Waldensians, it mentions that towards the end of a big meeting that they had there in the mountains of northern Italy, some Men come down from Geneva as representatives of the Protestant Reformation. It said that after a week of discussion, the views of the younger ministers prevailed. And many people joined the Protestant Reformation. There were probably Sabbath keepers among that group. Probably people who kept the holy days. When I first read that in a library in Geneva... I thought, wow, this is exactly what happened in the church of God. The views of the younger ministers prevailed. 
and they brought in a lot of Protestant theology that many of you people that are older left behind for reasons. The Sardis here, Mr. Armstrong appeared to have come in contact with these people and says, you have a name, but you're dead. You're not doing anything. They understood about the Sabbath. They understood something about the Holy Days, some other things, but they weren't doing anything. The Philadelphia era appears to have been the era of the church under Mr. Armstrong. It was small, faithful, but were the biggest purchasers of religious radio time in the world at that time. The magazine was going to 10 million people a month. That was just being mailed out. Multiply that by two, three, or four people that were reading it. Laodicea is the era that is described as being the last era of the church. I think as Dr. Germano had mentioned that Revelation 2 and 3 is not talking about Christian history. It's talking about the church's history, the history of the church of God. And the last era is talked about a Laodicean era. It says you're rich. You've got a lot of money. You're increased with goods. But you're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. You don't understand. You're lukewarm. It's interesting comments that are made by people that are not happy where they are. And more than one I've heard said, you know, whenever I'm really spiritually hungry, I go to the living church of God to get fed. But I've got a job back here. It just registers tilt. You know, there is a Laodicean era. We're living in it. And there's probably going to be a Laodicean organization that will be identifiable before it's all over. What we need to do as we prepare for the Passover is look inside. Are you, am I, Laodicean, coasting along? You're not going to be able to just coast into the kingdom of God. We're going to be tried and tested. It's not going to be that easy. So what era does the church represent that you're part of? Again, this is talking about the church of God. We need to plug in here Revelation 12, 9, that Satan has deceived the whole world. Most of the churches of the world don't fall into this category. Number nine, is the church that you're part of actively seeking God's will? Or is it doing its own thing? You know, before we have our council meetings, we literally pray, God, show us where we need to go. Help us to see where you want to go. You know, we don't stand in the hallway in little groups and I'm going to get Dr. Meredith over here and I'm going to get five guys on my side and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We don't do that. You know, go in there as 15 men, basically, and ask God, show us, guide us, help us to see the direction that we need to go. You know, Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, He said, It's not my will... But yours, Father. You know, if Jesus had his own way, physically speaking, he probably said, God, isn't there a better way we could do this? I don't want to be able to get on that, that post up there. In fact, this one article was in the paper this morning. He said, we need to rethink the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God wouldn't be mean to people and make somebody die. And here's a theologian. Christ died for the sins of human beings. 
because we've broken the laws of God. You break a law, there's got to be a penalty paid. And we teach our kids this. <laughs> you know, you make a big mess and you do it deliberately, then you have to be encouraged not to do that in various ways. You know, is the church you're part of actively seeking the will of God? Or is it out to do its own thing? Is it following the government of God? Number 10. Is the church that you're a part of on fire? On fire for the work of God? Or is it just coasting along? Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Jesus mentions to his own disciples in John chapter 4, verse 34. He says, my meat, my food, what turns me on is to do the will of him who sent me. You know, the night is far spent, as other scriptures mention. We don't have that much more time. We've got a job to do to reach the world with a message to explain what is happening in the world and what it means. What's happening in Europe? What's happening in our country? You know, we're living in a country today that, you know, our administrations are promoting same-sex marriages and this and that and the other thing. This would have been absolutely unheard of back in the 50s, back in the 60s. It was just absolutely unheard of. There's another article came out, I think it was on the Internet this past week. It said, if you have gotten a bachelor's degree from an American college or university, you probably don't think homosexuality is a big deal. You probably don't think same-sex marriage is a big deal. In other words, there's this liberalizing trend. had a young lady actually talk with me last week. Her mother brought her up to talk with me. And she said, uh, why are you so against homosexuality? You don't say anything about murder. I said, they're both bad. <laughs> they're both bad. But the young lady didn't think there was any problem. Well, that's just the way somebody's made. They're not made that way. There are circumstances that lead to that. And the studies that purportedly show there's a genetic link, you gotta th they're, they're not good studies. You know, the more parts of a brain that you use, it grows, just like a muscle. And you wind up thinking certain thoughts and doing certain things, you're going to get electrodes and, and little uh, nerve connections there. So if they do a study on a person that's gay and they say, well, his, his brain is different. Yeah, it's going to be different. You know, somebody that works out with weights, their muscles are going to be different than somebody that doesn't. That's what happens. And they critique these studies that supposedly prove something, and they don't prove anything at all. But politically, they're acceptable because it proves what somebody wants to prove. Is the church that you're part of on fire for the work of God? Are you on fire for the work of God? Now, we have been blessed incredibly in this country. There are reasons why we've been blessed. We need to understand that and be thankful for that. But we're also going to have to explain to the people of this country and many others why things are going to happen to them. That's part of our mission 
as a church, not just to talk about Jesus. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and establish a government on this earth. He's going to have some things to say to religious leaders who are telling people other things. So, brethren, many people today, I've seen them, you've seen them, are sincere. Many people are sincere. They want to do what God wants them to do. But as we can see in the Lutheran church and the Anglican church, various churches of God, a lot of people are confused. They're concerned. They're wanting to know, what should I do? Where should I be? As we approach the Passover and the days of unleavened bread, I would encourage all of us to ponder the path of our feet. Why are we where we are? What are we doing? Are we moving in the direction that God wants us to move? Are we literally following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ? Are we following His teachings? Are we following His example? Or are we playing church? We need to think about these things. You might ask God, God, show me, as the man did somewhere in the Pacific, God, what happened to your church? Where did it go? God, show me where I need to be. Maybe pray about it, fast about it, ask for wisdom, ask for discernment, and ask for guidance. God, show me where I need to be. Because we're not dealing with just an academic issue. We're dealing with an issue that's going to have an impact on your future. We need to understand and be able to prove to ourselves where is God's true church.